All right. Uh, welcome to Monday. Um, we're going to be talking today all day about, well, all show about Charleston. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories from my life. Um, one of them is that, um, so I went to Yale University, and I, to tell you the truth, I think that in the four years I was there from 72 to 76, I was so clueless, it never occurred to me that it was sort of weird that one of the uh, residential colleges, and the residential colleges are the, they're the backbone and the framework of the university. They are kind of what makes the university what it is. It never occurred to me that one of them was named after John C. Calhoun and that that was weird. I just thought it was called Calhoun College. I don't know. I thought it was Rory Calhoun. Who knows, who knows what I thought, but I didn't think about this. So today, I went to school for 10 years uh, with an uh, Afri- African-American guy named Doug Lawrence. So we were at uh, a private school for six years together uh, and then at Yale for four years. And he was in Calhoun College. So, so I emailed him today. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at myself. I emailed him today. I said, did it ever... Did it ever come up? Was it ever a problem, you know, that you were in this college named after John Z. Calhoun? And I got this email back, and you, it's it's risky to try to interpret tone of voice in emails, but I read it as, yes, it came up. <laughs> I was like, we're 60 years old. You're just thinking about this. That was, I, I think, the, the contained thing, and I completely deserve that. The other um, story was that, and I think it's sort of about how completely crazy America still is. Uh, so yesterday was Father's Day. So my son was there uh, with his girlfriend. Uh, and so my son is a Latino and his girlfriend is African-American. And they were leaving the house and they're rolling down the driveway. And I suddenly realized one of his brake lights is out. And I'm like just unlike I think probably most white parents – uh, or I guess I am a white parent, but a, uh, a parent uh, of children who are white. Uh, I'm like frantically texting him. I'm mean, waiting for him to get home so that he won't be looking at his phone while he's in the car. I'm like your, your brake lights out, you have to fix it tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, you have to go to the Valvoline place and get the brake light. Brake light because it's the kind of thing that you worry about because this country is still completely crazy. So um, anyway, in that vein, we're going to talk about Charleston. With us is uh, Kalila Brown Dean, associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University, and increasingly an indispensable part of WNPR. Do you just want to have a show here? I, I would uh, love to. Let's yeah. talk after Let's the break. Except if you had a show, then when John or I asked you to be on our shows, you'd say you were too busy. So that would be the downside. We'll work it out. Yeah. But anyway, the, increasingly somebody that we uh, we need to talk to about things like this and many other things besides. And as we go along today, we'll be talking to lots of other people. We also welcome your phone calls, at least about the relevant parts of what we're saying. 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR. Colin. Um, so before we uh, talk to Maury McGinnis, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of, well, I, you know, when we react to something as palpable and bloody and horrible as the, the murders in Charleston, you know, we can't bring those people back to life. So what we wind up talking about are words and symbols and ideas and history. And sometimes I feel as though you could accuse us, one could accuse us, of, well, you're just talking about words and ideas and symbols and history, but I don't know what else there is. In a time like this. I think it's also a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Everyone's trying to make sense of this moment. And we want to feel like we can do something. Mm -hmm. And even if that something doesn't bring those individuals back, it doesn't necessarily stop the kind of terror of um, the shooter. It makes us feel like we've overcome that pain because we've done something. So if we can talk about changing the name of a residential college or taking down a flag, it makes us feel like we've at least addressed a part of it. Because we can't really acknowledge that what if there's nothing that we can do? 
Right. And I think also we often tell ourselves that we've overcome our history. Um, and people believe that in varying degrees across this country. But uh, people point to all kinds of things like the election of President Obama and say, well, we've overcome our history. That's not that's not really even an incident like last week's murders. That doesn't arise from our history. But I'm not at all persuaded that we a we've overcome our history or b that things like last week aren't directly connected to events in 1850 or 1822. Especially in a state like South Carolina where you see Governor Nikki Haley being the first Indian American elected governor mm-hmm. of any state in this country and people said, "Look, she's a Republican, she's a woman and she's of Indian descent." Yeah. What greater opportunity could you see of the American dream being realized in her election? And then you hear the rhetoric of, you know, allowing South Carolina residents to be proud of that history without acknowledging history in its totality. So whether it's the history of that church, it's the history of what churches have meant to African-American communities or the history of the flag, we don't overcome history by picking and choosing the parts that we like. That's beautifully put. Um, we're going to talk to Maury McInnes right now. And uh, by the way, Kalila Brown-Dean, I'm counting on you as essentially a co-host here today. So as uh, people ask questions and chime in and uh, and do all that kind of stuff. Um, Maury McGinnis is a professor of art history at the University of Virginia and author of Slaves Waiting for Sale, Abolitionist, Abolitionist Art in the American Slave Trade. Uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. And I, I will uh, now put myself into the category of the historically ignorant uh, and say that when we started talking about Charleston last Thursday, uh, and people started talking about Denmark Vesey pretty quickly. And I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that name mean, meant nothing to me. It was a story I just uh, didn't know. So one of the things that you've done is write pretty much much of the story uh, of that piece of Charleston uh, geography uh, and its and that church. Uh, or the various variations of that church, uh, and as has been suggested um, by many people, uh, that's it's not insignificant. In fact, here is President Obama reacting in the uh, early hours after the shootings. The fact that uh, this took place uh, in a black church uh, obviously also raises questions about a dark part of our history. Uh, this is not the first time that black churches have been attacked. And we know that hatred across races and faiths pose a particular threat to our democracy and our ideals. Maury McGinnis, this is not just any black church, right? Tell us a little more of the story uh, of this particular uh, AME church in Charleston. Well, this church is really central to the history of the AME Church, and particularly in Charleston. So the African Methodist Episcopal Church is first established in Philadelphia in 1816, and by 1816, 1818, it's a little fuzzy. There's a congregation in Charleston, so it's one of the earliest congregations, and it's a congregation in a slave state, and not only a slave state, but the most enslaved of the states in, in the 18-teens that had the highest percentage um, of African Americans living there. Charleston as a city for all of its history until right up until 1860 is more than 50 percent African American, most of whom are enslaved. And so it has a really, really early and important history in the city, and it becomes a place for the gathering of African Americans, both free and enslaved, away from the eye of the master to worship as they wished. What we also learned in the Vasey insurrection, though, is they were probably talking about other things than just religion, but also 
preaching a liberation theology there. Although we don't really know, right? We don't ultimately know what was said there or, I mean, we're just fast forwarding for a moment to the accusations against him. We don't really ultimately know for sure what got said. No, and we never will know for certain. So what we do know is we know what was written down on the transcripts that were taken at what they called trials. But, of course, these were not real trials. The people accused had no due process. The people accused were uh, probably tortured before giving their testimony. Their, much of their testimony was probably coerced. Even the transcripts themselves could be doctored, and we would have no way of knowing it. Um, but there are two sets of transcripts. We also know what was then published and released to the white public at the time of the supposed insurrection. Um, and so we don't know what was said. There's a lot in there, though, even if testimony is coerced, that is about the kind of quotidian details of daily life that probably do tell us a lot about life in Charleston around 1822. And one would suspect that there's lots of talk in the African-American community about freedom. There's just been the debates over the Missouri Compromise. There are parts of the U.S. now where slavery is illegal. There's lots of talk about freedom and liberty going on at the time, and it's probably happening in that church as well. Uh, you know, I, I was sort of surprised to read and realize that that uh, people in Charleston, South Carolina, that black people in South Carolina, South Carolina could could form a church at that time in history. I mean, it, it, how was that? How was it possible? How could they form a church? Well, they could form a church because no one had at the time a real reason to worry about their forming a church. Um, but it's after the accusations surrounding the denmark Vesey insurrection, that they start to become really nervous about the idea of large groups of African Americans gathering together without white supervision. Um, and that is when the clampdown on churches um, in South Carolina begins, is not too long after um, this event. You know, um, Kalila, uh, your beautiful daughter is here with us today, sitting in the control room. And and I mean, I feel like I grew up with one version uh, of American history that where I did get talk, taught about Denmark VZ or a whole bunch of other things. Um, does she know that story or she will know that story at some point? She right? will know this story. So a lot of the discussion that we've had in our household, my husband and I both grew up in a small town in Virginia uh, and Maury, I'm a graduate of UVA, so wahoo wah for that. Um, but we grew up in a town called Lynchburg, Virginia, which has its own very distinct history. And as parents, we thought about, do we shield and protect her from those ugly parts of history, or do we teach her about that? And so one of the things that was important for us was to the timing of that attack last week, that on Friday, uh, it marked Juneteenth which for many African-Americans is such an important recognition that freedom didn't come when Abraham Lincoln said, we have the Emancipation Proclamation. It took another two years for people across the South to really have any chance at experiencing that. And so that's a history that I think is important for my daughter to learn as an African-American child, but really for all children in this country to understand that history is complex, and unless we acknowledge it, we can't really make sense of what we're dealing with today. 
You know, Maury McGinnis, the story of Denmark Vesey isn't just the story of Dem- Denmark Vesey. He's become kind of a placeholder or a name uh, uh, for this story. But first of all, it wasn't just him upon whom punishment was meted out, right? No. In the um, what becomes almost a, a paranoia sweeping through the city, 131 men are arrested, 35 are hanged, and another 43 are found guilty and told to either leave the state or the country. And if they you know, left the country, they were probably sold into enslavement in the Caribbean, and if it was leaving the state, probably down to the newly opening up cotton lands. Um, and in both of those incidents, those are, those are close to a death sentence in terms of the survival rates in those new areas. So it was a broad, sweeping indictment of, of dozens of men. And we may never know the true extent of the conspiracy and how clearly formed the plans were, but the reality, what is known, is that the white people believed it and were terrified. And, you know, since you also are a professor of art history, I mean, one of the then questions is how how to process this story over the millennia, how how to process it across centuries. So obviously in 1822, there would have been no uh, talk, at least in the prevailing white community, about how to commemorate uh, Denmark VC or this incident. But how has South Carolina dealt with it in terms of memorializing it? Um, My understanding is that there, at long last, there eventually is a, a statue. There is, but I'm very disappointed by where they placed the statue. So, you know, we're having a debate uh, again um, about the placement of the Confederate flag on the grounds of the Capitol in Columbia. But the city of Charleston also needs to think very much about its memorialized landscape. So what hovers over the city and actually hovers very close to the AME church is an enormous column with John C. Calhoun at the top of it. And you can walk through the city and find again and again memorials that relate to the Confederacy, to Confederate soldiers, to particular generals. Um, It's a very confederated um, memorialized landscape. And there's very little that addresses slavery. And where they place the Denmark Vesey sculpture is not in Marion Square, where the Calhoun sculpture is. It's not down in White Point Gardens or the Battery, as it's often referred to, where the tourists are located, where White Charleston is located. It's instead in Hampton Park, which is north in the peninsula, and is a place where very few White Charlestonians and certainly no tourists are ever going to go. So it doesn't help to rewrite that history at all. Um, uh, it should be noted, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but we, I spent a couple of days last week with uh, Roger Guinevere Smith, who's this amazing performer who's touring around right now, around right now with this one-man show about Rodney King. And he was saying that the reason, and he's, his mother's from Charleston, and he'd just been back there, that the reason that the Calhoun uh, statue is up, on, or maybe one reason the Calhoun statue is up on a column, is that it was uh, lower to the ground for a long time, and that black people... Uh, resenting the, his presence at all as a white supremacist and secessionist in their community would place uh, feces on his lap and light them on fire um, so that eventually the, this column, I don't know if it's a true story or not, it kind of has to I don't ring. either. Yeah. I, it, it's a great story. What I do know about the design of the Calhoun Memorial is the original design was a seated Calhoun. Mm-hmm. 
um, but it was very quickly changed to something up on a column. And I, this is stuff I read in, in the archives long, long ago. My memory was that the White Committee said they didn't feel it was grand enough, but there could always be that background story that they would never have put into the written materials. Um, so I would love to know more uh, if we could ever trace down the source of that story, because one would love to find those kinds of examples of resistance that very often don't survive in the narratives of history written by white people who were largely controlling the writing of history. I can give you Roger's email address, but um, that would mean, be great. But meanwhile, uh, uh, has sure. So what I think is is great here is to think about the pastor who was killed, Clementa Pinckney, was actually one of the key people pushing to have that Denmark VC statue located more centrally to the city. And so I would ask you more. What would you say from what you know about history, what should we take away from this, from this moment so that it's a part of that legacy of whether it's, you know, churches and their independent nature and importance to African-American communities or this history in the South? What would you say to the average person that does not know this particular story? Yeah. Oh, I've been struggling with that for days. Um, And, you know, like you you know, are probably muddled in the many different lessons that I, I think we should take. And as a historian, I struggle with this one because, you know, for the last however many months that we've been talking about police brutality and we've been talking about racial unrest in so many different ways, and I see historical parallels again and again and again. When you set a curfew in Baltimore, for African-American youth or for youth, but mostly aimed at African-Americans. It reminds me of the curfew that the city guard had for Mm African-Americans in city to control movement during slavery. And And I could go on and on with this list. And I do think we have to understand our nation's longstanding history And it's not just race during slavery. It's also in the period of Jim Crow segregation and through the civil rights movement. And and we just don't know our history well enough. But they have deep resonances. As we look at Dylan Roof's manifesto, if we can call it that, it's tinged throughout with what he thinks is history. He's absorbing this deep history of racism that pervades our nation, and I don't know how we make ourselves more knowledgeable. Yeah, I mean, it seems unquestionably that had Dylan Roof grown up uh, in Portland, Maine, uh, I mean, he might have been a a very dangerous and angry person. Who knows? But he wouldn't have written the manifesto that he wrote. He wouldn't be expressing himself this way. Um, I mean, everything about who he is and what he says seems to kind of grow up out of the environment that he's in. I want to ask both of you about this. And this is also obviously an unfair question that cannot be answered very easily on on, uh, Monday the 22nd or whatever day this is of 2015. But it seems as though Charleston now faces like this whole other set of questions. I mean, you know what? You don't want to keep building memorials to people who get killed in horrible ways because of racism. You want that to stop happening. But, but Kalila, it seems to me Charleston has a whole other question. That church has a whole other question. To what degree does it become the church where that happened? Or to what degree does it sort of play the role that black churches typically play, which is very much a story of resilience uh, and, 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 and forward momentum? Um, but f- 
I think both for Charleston and for the church mm-hmm. itself, Kalila, there's there are all kinds of questions that have to be answered. I think this has shattered that veneer that Charleston has worked very hard to build up to become a major tourist attraction, that you cannot bring in tourists without acknowledging the pain that your residents are going through every day. To see the church open its doors yesterday to welcome people in just mere days after this tragedy Part of me felt like that is the resilience of the human spirit. That is part of the AME tradition. But then the more human side of me said, no, why is it that people have to be so forgiving and so opening in the face of unspeakable grief, especially to have a judge sort of admonish them in that same way? So I think it cannot just become another stop on the trail for tourists to come and lay flowers and feel that they have somehow done something. But I think we also need to ask those families, what is it that they would want to see going forward? There's been a lot of talk about them very little discussion about what they need to do to heal and to really acknowledge the deep-seated pain. That young man didn't come out of nowhere. And, Maury, it also seems that a community that already literally puts John C. Calhoun on a pedestal, um, you know, isn't, I, I wonder if, that, if, if Charleston has enough common agreement about what reality is uh, to be able to come up with some fitting way to, to mark what just happened there last week. Yeah, I mean, I I have not lived in Charleston now for almost 20 years, so I can and I unfortunately was not able to go down this weekend. I would love to have been able to, um, so I can't speak to whether they do now have that common understanding. I can tell you, 20 years ago, they did not. Um, there was still a pervasive, and this is true in so many places in the South, a denial of that history, a desire not to talk about and not to address the ugly stuff. Um, Now, I will say the city itself has tried to make some changes, and I think this is largely under the the leadership of Mayor Riley. He opened the Charleston Slave Mart Museum uh, over five years ago now, um, which is the first museum in the U.S. dedicated to telling the story of the internal slave trade. He's been trying for many years to open, to raise money for and establish a museum of, of slavery in Charleston, which is a completely appropriate place for it to be. At least probably 40 percent of the people who were forcibly enslaved and brought to the U.S. from Africa came through Sullivan's Island, which is one of the barrier islands just off of Charleston Harbor. It really is the sort of Ellis Island in many ways for so many African Americans who came to Africans who came to the U.S. And that history and that story, for the most part, is not told um, and is not known in the city. And they they're making progress, but they've got a long way to go. So as an an historian, how do you address this question of, yes, John Calhoun is not necessarily the, you know, the person that we want to put forth, but you cannot erase his role in history. So I hear that question when people say, well, this is why we shouldn't take the name Calhoun off of a residential college, because in spite of all of that, you can't just erase his imprint. So how do you balance that as an historian with the idea of being a citizen and being disturbed by his actions and how his rhetoric really set in motion a lot of that uh, pain for Charleston? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something we struggle with here at the University of Virginia. I'm something I'm sure you're very mm-hmm. aware of as well. So the University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson, who 
probably better than anybody else, embodies the paradox of American history. This man who can write the words that all men are created equal and yet does nothing to end the institution of slavery. And the institution of the University of Virginia was also founded on the institution of slavery. And yet our memorialized landscape here is one that celebrates Jefferson and speaks very little to the history of slavery. Now, we here have been trying to change that. If you took the name of every slave owner off of a building at the University of Virginia, we'd have very few buildings left, right? Because given our in, being in the South um, and many of our buildings named after early Southerners, they're almost all named after slave owners. But what we've done here as a start, and we have a long way to go, is we've recently named a dormitory after William and Isabella Gibbons, who were two people enslaved at the University of Virginia who in freedom became important leaders in the Charlottesville community. Isabella, a teacher at the lo local African-American school, and William Gibbons, a minister in the First African Baptist Church. Um, I think one of the ways, I'm not a big proponent of tearing memorials down, and part of that is the art historian in me, um, but part of it is also I do think you need those markers to remain in the landscape, but what I think you have to do is add to a landscape that also tells the parts of the history that are not now part of that memorialized landscape. So you celebrate civil rights leaders. You have memorials that acknowledge the history of slavery at an institution or in a city. I think you have to work hard to create a more balanced story because these monuments help shape public memory. They do. Maureen McInnes, this is a perfect transition into our uh, upcoming conversation about Calhoun College. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody should read Maureen McInnes' terrific article at Slate uh, about, in fact, this very history that we've been talking about here today. Kalila Brown-Dean is staying with me for the entire show. Um, I've got a couple of tweets. Can I read the tweets? Do I have time? Um, from the Hill, we're, we're getting the report that Governor Nikki Haley is expected to call for the removal of the Confederate flag from the state uh, capitol grounds. Uh, I should say that she doesn't actually have the power to do anything about that. The legislature, I think, has to do it. Uh, and then from Dave, Dave wonders how other cultures honor veterans of controversial losing sides, how, for instance, German soldiers uh, after World War II. I can actually say a little something about that from the show that we did about German identity. Ger they almost overcorrected, I mean, to a point where the Germans are uncomfortable. They look at our expressions of patriotism with our regular flag, not the Confederate flag, not the battle flag, but the, our regular flag. And they, they think it's very freaky. They just don't do that. Um, it's They're still very, very much in, in a state of struggle. And uh, any level of comfortable commemoration uh, of World War II is just kind of something that they, they really have a lot, a lot of trouble with. All right. We've got to take a quick break. Now you can play Cassandra Wilson. And we'll come back. I'll take that box of reparation. No, not the little one. I want the big one. 
I feel as though today's show would be very different had I not met Roger Guinevere Smith uh, last night, last week, because uh, he got me thinking about all kinds of things. Uh, so he was the source of the anecdote we just shared with Maury, uh, and he's also one of the reasons I've been thinking about uh, the next topic. We're here with Kalila Brown-Dean. She's kind of co-hosting with me today, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Um, we're also right now going to talk to Chris Rabb. Chris Rabb teaches uh, social entrepreneurship at Temple University and is Social Impact Fellow at the Innovation and, boy, these are hard words to say, Innovation and Entrepreneurship Institute at Temple's Fox School of Business. He's also a genealogist and a 1992 graduate of Yale, where he was affiliated with Calhoun College and majored in African American Studies. So, um, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm so dumb that I managed to go through Yale from 1972 to 1976 without ever thinking about the name of Calhoun College. I didn't even realize it was John C. Calhoun. I just thought it was some random person named Calhoun. So uh, when I got thinking about it, though, because of Roger, I started thinking about it and I started reading about it. And Chris Rabb, I came across your name right away, that you're actually somebody who's brought this up and you've been involved in at least one forum or kind of a summit uh, conversation uh, about the name of this college. First of all, how did it strike you initially when you realized that you were going to be living? I mean, when you're affiliated with a college, we should make it clear, you live there for three of your four years. Um, how did that feel uh, when you realized whose name you were going to be living under? Oh, I was pissed. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, there's no other. I mean, I I, I was just um, I was insulted. I was shocked. I was um, mad as hell. Um, and uh, as soon as I realized that it was the John C. Calhoun, you know, I just kind of asked around and most people like you didn't know mm-hmm. um and a fair number of people didn't really care um and that wasn't just white folk it was anyone affiliated because you know there's a certain type of person that goes to yale it's not there are plenty of smart people in the world um and they go and some don't go to college at all but there's a certain level of status that uh people like uh that's conferred upon them when they go to an elite institution and when you're connected to um, one of the 12 residential colleges, you take that on as your own. And so, as you know, Hoonies are hardcore, right? Calhoun College affiliates, graduates, students are, you know, they're very rah-rah. And they're, they're called Hoonies. Well, I didn't really go for that. No. It's the smallest college. It's the college that was most recently renovated when I was there. And so there was a lot of... Uh, Patriotism, for lack of a better term, you know, loyalty to the brand, irrespective of the namesake. And I found myself uh, fairly lonely uh, uh, in this struggle to make uh, make waves around addressing this issue, not necessarily changing the name, but just bringing it up and saying this is relevant, particularly at a liberal arts university. Um, This needs to be discussed. And so really from 89 um, uh, to the present, uh, I've been associated with the call to at least raise attention to the name, if not change the name. So whenever something comes up, I get a phone call. <laughs> well, uh, yes, and so. a lot of people assume that I'm there to uh, do whatever I can to to blow up Calhoun College or to change the name, and it, it, neither is true, actually. Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about that as we go along. Although, um, Kalila Brown-Dean, um, one thing that shocked me was, okay, so I started thinking about this, and then I thought, well, I don't know, Yale's really old, who knows, that, you know, I, I can't think of a time in history when it would have been cool to call uh, something Calhoun College, particularly in a Northeastern college, but who knows when that happened. It happened in 1933. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, the, the, 
I don't know where the it's hard to picture where the mentality came to do that. So let me give you an example. Hey, Chris, by the way, I was an assistant professor hey. at <laughs> Yale when Jonathan Holloway, African-American uh, professor, amazing intellect, was master of Calhoun College. So as someone who grew up in the South, hearing the term or title master was just odd. Mm -hmm. But to see this very amazing African-American professor as master or head of this college give a speech during Black History Month at that about the history of Calhoun College and why it was important for the university to recognize and acknowledge that contentious history, but to also have a conversation about, by changing the name, does it erase the damage that Calhoun has done, or is it important for us to at least acknowledge that is a part of our past, but we're making efforts to try to change that. So whether it's changing the name of you know one of the newer colleges or naming it in honor of someone or having a plaque about that history, there is no agreement. And I think, as Chris said, it's not that all African-Americans believe we should change this name or that all white alum think we should keep it there. There's a lot of discussion within communities. And that, I think, highlights how difficult it is to reconcile our history with what we face currently. You know, we got in touch with Jonathan Holloway, actually, uh, for this show. And uh, although he couldn't come on, he wrote, um, I, you know, I've been opposed to changing the name of the college because I felt, as you, sort of you were saying, it absolves Yale from a terrible decision. I have to confess, however, that the events of the last 18 months, and especially the monstrosity in Charleston, have rattled me. Yes, the historian in me still sees with alarm our national propensity to forget ugliness for the convenience of the modern moment. But the citizen in me just keeps seeing examples after example of an inability to imagine that African-Americans have a humanity that ought to be respected. Wow, there's that uh, eloquence that you talked about, Kalila. But so what about that, um, Chris? You know, you, you, as you say, you, you are, although Google searches are your doom, you know, I mean, basically you're just going to come up. Uh, <laughs> but, but that, right. you know, that you come up as this guy who so like, maybe wants to get rid uh, of the name Calhoun College or get rid of the college or something, and that's really not who you are. But I'm wondering how the last 18 months affected you, too. I mean, it, it's hard to have lived through this period of American history and have come out the same way. Well, see, I I majored in African-American history with a, a, a concentration, uh, African-American studies with concentration in history. And I, I come from uh, a family of, of activists. Uh, I, I learned more about American history and my own history from my elders uh, than I ever did in school. Um, until I got to college, and even then it was incomplete, of course. Um, so there's nothing I – mean, these massacres do not surprise me. They do not change my view of society or humanity. They confirm it, uh, both in terms of the monstrosity of what happened, our um, uh, mainstream society's ability to forgive and apologize for the actions of white supremacists, and how um, amazing humanity is in terms of how we come and uh, rally around folks and how this can be a, a pivot point for many people. Um, some people will be irrevocably changed by what they saw. Um, those of us who are black, frankly, this is just this is an awful example of what has been going on for every single year that black folk have been in this country. And the reason this is relevant to me, I think, is on a number of, of levels. One is when I asked the master, which I had a difficult time calling a white person master uh, when I got to Yale, um, I, I told him to remove the, the stained glass window of a black man in shackles kneeling before 
John C. Calhoun with the Capitol building behind his, his, his shoulder. And he objected, and I insisted, and he removed it. I went home, uh, went to my grandfolks' house at Thanksgiving, who were activists in Baltimore, Baltimore. Mm. And I thought they'd be proud of me. And they said, no, what you did was wrong. We need these reminders of institutional racism. We don't want any successive generation of black folk or anyone else coming through Yale thinking that Yale is anything other than what it is. You know, you know. Um, so I was shocked and dismayed by, you know, them not being proud of what I had done. And fast forward, I find out that um, my, my very name, Rab, comes from an Irish-American slaveholding family in a county very close to where Calhoun owned people. Uh, and then a year after that, after I graduated, I found out that uh, my sixth great-grandfather was Philip Livingston, who was the first alum to endow a professorship um, at Yale, which uh, is in Brantford College, the, the Livingston Archway, and that his New York-based family was more involved in slavery on a greater scale than John C. Calhoun, a northerner who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, who owned one of my ancestors through one of his grandsons, and that rocked me. Right, and we actually, one of the people we almost booked for today's show is Ann Farrow, who wrote an amazing book called Complicity, which is about, in fact, sort of the northern and specifically Connecticut complicity in, in slavery. Although I want to ask you both about this, because, I, you know, with all deference to your grandparents, um, you know, it's such a complicated thing to have, say, that name on that college or that piece of stained glass sitting there uh, showing what it showed. Because obviously it can be read, uh, Chris Rabb, two different ways uh, as this kind of teachable moment uh, where we, we talk about this stuff or something that's not offensive enough to have to be taken down. Uh, and I suppose a lot of it depends on the set of eyes that are looking at it. But, but leaving it up there almost suggests it's not grotesque and offensive enough so that it has to be taken down. What's your reaction to that? Well, that's context, mm -hmm. right? H how, you, how you display something. Um, what is the conversation that is curated around it? What is the architecture? What, is the, the, what are the curricula around uh, this legacy? That's a choice. Those are policy issues. Those are budget issues. And my grandmother used to say, the way you can really tell the politics of an organization is its board and its budget. How important is this to Yale? Does Yale care enough that it still has the name of a white supremacist um, um, as one of its uh, residential colleges? Um, and if so, what is, can we be allowed to come through Calhoun as, as Yale students, as Calhoun-affiliated, and, and have the luxury of not knowing who he is? I think that's a choice we can make. And bigger than that, because this is not just about Calhoun. Calhoun is small potatoes. Um, what about Yale? Yale is a vastly wealth, uh, wealthy organization. It's very influential, right? It, it's so much bigger. Uh, in fact, the Livingstons were probably the richest American aristocracy in U.S. history and are more, more complicit in slavery than a lot of other families that get a bad rap because they're Southern and they're more explicit about the racism. But they owned my ancestor. They didn't give you know, my ancestor, Christiana Taylor Livingston Williams Freeman, anything. And they owned 500,000 acres in New York State. But I think That's simply wrong. This is an issue that we're seeing crop up in various sectors. So whether we're talking about renaming the Washington football team because we believe the name of the team is offensive and it denies the very humanity of Native American communities, 
or this debate in Selma, Alabama right now? Should we rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge? Because having his name rise so high across that skyline sort of reinforces that legacy of supremacy. And so when you hear someone like John Lewis, who had his his skull fractured on that very bridge, say, no, do not change the name, because I want school children to see that name and ask their parents, who is Edmund Pettus? And that forces us to have that conversation. I feel torn. I don't think that when people see the name Calhoun, they walk by it, and then that prompts them to say, well, who is Calhoun, and and what did he do, and is this problematic? We're not having those conversations. So having those repeated names and symbols to many is just a a further infliction of hurt. It's not producing conversation. All right. We want to uh, thank Chris Rabb uh, for uh, his great perspective on this. We'll have more of Kalila Brown-Dean after this break. These broken wings learn to fly oh, all your life. You've always waited for this moment to arrive. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Hallie St. Germain, Anna Geismar, and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, and photos, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, scientists and economists respond to the Pope's encyclical on climate change. Now, back to Colin. Yeah, we're sort of sitting in a space between uh, the Pope's encyclical and the talks in Paris that will be coming up in December. Uh, so we're having our own little summit uh, on the show tomorrow about this. Uh, today we're talking about responses to Charleston. Uh, Kalila Brown-Dean has been sort of functioning as co-host with me. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Um, joining us now is Arthur Chu. Arthur Chu is a freelance columnist who writes for the Daily Beast uh, and for Salon. He's also my favorite all-time Jeopardy champion if they sold jerseys. You know, like you get an Aaron Rodgers jersey or something. I would get it. I might even say Chew on the back. Chew, uh, true. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Arthur Chew's with us. Uh, he wrote about the role that uh, mental illness plays in sort of couching uh, and and framing a story like this one. Uh, before we get to Arthur, let's listen to Christina Greer, a professor at Fordham University, speaking on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. This man, he's mm-hmm. not a boy. He's 21 years old. Correct. It is premeditated. We mm-hmm. cannot just brush it off. Oh, he had mental illness. I am tired of sort of that. Yeah being the excuse of Adam Lanza and whatever boys behave badly. All right. So, Arthur Chu, this is this uh, sets up your piece. Um, This is one of the ways uh, in the first blush, in the first hours and sometimes for for days and weeks thereafter, after um, a mass killing, you will hear uh, the phrase mental illness or he was uh, he had a psychiatric disorder or something like that. And and you say that's that's sort of a way of framing it without paying attention to the context in which it happened. But I'm sure you can uh, uh, articulate your own point better than I can. Right. Um, I mean, I, I wrote that piece because um, last year in the Isla Vista shootings, you know, um, I wrote a, another piece that went viral at the time and got asked to talk about a lot about um, Elliot Roger and how his views on women, which were, you know, very, very written out in great detail and put on the Internet, were a central part of the motivation for his murders and how people were extremely dismissive of that. And, you know, I, I actually 
literally came face to face with that. I had people tell me when I was on Don Lemon's show um, that, no, this is about mental illness. This is about an individual person's, you know, individual delusions and that we collectively bear no responsibility to look at our culture. And that really, really bothered me. It still does bother me. And I feel like we need to, like, proactively nip that in the bud because it's nothing but an excuse. The term mental illness is this really overbroad term. The vast majority of people who suffer from mental illness are not dangerous to the people around them. Statistics show that people who suffer from mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of violent crime than to be the perpetrators of violent crime. And um, to just say, oh, he was mentally ill is to sort of imply his beliefs came out of nowhere, right? Is to say, like, um, Elliot Rogers' beliefs about women or Ruth's beliefs about race, which were also related to his beliefs about women, came out of nowhere. And, and they very clearly didn't. They're part of a discourse that you can easily see online. And both, both of those men, you know, in their manifestos talked about communities online where they got those beliefs and that nurture those beliefs. And we are really complacent about just ignoring that and, and casting people as lone wolves, you know, making it into a question of an aberration so that we can just say, oh, one person went crazy and there was no possible way to predict it or act in advance of it, and all we can do is wait until the next person goes crazy, right? And I'm not satisfied with that answer, and I don't think other people should be. Yeah, uh, Kalila Brandeen, this sort of goes back to the, a word that Chris Rabb used in the previous segment, context. Um, that, that um, you know, as, as Arthur's saying, if we say, oh, he was mentally ill, he was crazy, it's, the suggestion is he's a complete outlier as opposed to a product of something. I think there's definitely a systemic and a cultural issue here. When you have politicians who routinely use the language of taking back our country or to hear a speech by Donald Trump where he casts an entire group of people as polluting the country, of preying upon our women, then it makes sense. When you hear this shooter's manifesto, it mirrors the exact language. So I think those politicians, those pundits, have to take some collective responsibility here, that they are tapping into a language and a fear that has detrimental consequences. We don't see mass shooting acts of terror every day. But those more subtle microaggressions that manifest at a pool in McKinney, Texas, also manifest at a church in Charleston. I mean, Arthur, one of the things that I notice is, um, and, and you allude to this in your piece, is that mental illness is a thing people bring up when they don't want to talk about the other thing, whatever the other thing is. So when Sandy Hook came, uh, happened here in Connecticut, um, people who were kind of gun activists and Second Amendment activists, all they wanted to talk about was mental health and that we don't fund our mental health system well enough and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, these are not people who had been attending a lot of legislative hearings about properly funding our mental health system. They just became mental health activists all of a sudden because they didn't want to hear the other part of that story, which is about firearms. And you, I think you're kind of making the same argument here and in all these other instances, too. It's the thing you talk about if you don't want to talk about the other thing. Right. It's it's our way. You know, um, 2,000 years ago, we would have said demon possession. Today, we say mental illness. It's a thing used by incurious people to just sort of sweep aside a problem, to make it some, you know, an other. It's, it's someone who's aberrant or deficient in some way that you can't predict and you can't control, so we bear no responsibility to deal with it. Um, and that's, that's extremely troubling because, like I said, mental illness is not a precisely defined term. Um, and 
that's the thing. The vast majority of people who are consistently mental health advocates that I know, and I have some very good friends who work on this issue a lot, are, are completely like 180 degrees opposed to the agenda of using mental illness as a scapegoat, you know, in these brief situations just to get the heat off of racism, get the heat off of sexism, or get the heat off of gun violence, you know, and put it on mentally ill people. Um, the, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, the NRA actually proposed, instead of having a nationwide registry of gun owners, which many people were calling for at the time, that we have a nationwide registry of people who had been diagnosed with mental illness. And there's not a single you know, mental health advocate that I know who, who thought that was a good idea. That is a terrible idea. It's, it's far more invasive and damaging than making a registration of people who've purchased guns because you know, purchasing firearms is just a way of tracking deadly weapons that are in the pool of deadly weapons in our country. You know, it's it's part of how you could control the flow of deadly weapons, and um, it's our lack of such a registration system is why we end up with disasters like the the so-called the Fast and Furious um, scandal. Whereas, you know, if you increase the stigma against people who have diagnoses of mental illness, you're just discouraging people from seeking help so that they'll have a recorded diagnosis and you're increasing the stigma on people who as i said are far more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime and already face a ton of misconceptions and stigmas the idea that being mentally ill quote unquote automatically makes you violent and dangerous does a lot of harm to people's job prospects their relationships and it's to no benefit because a diagnose, there's no correlation between a specific diagnosable mental illness and violence. Most violence is carried out by people who don't have such a diag- have such a diagnosis. And are there yeah. two, are there two? I hate to break in, but we're sort of basically out of time on our show. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. You are my Jeopardy Jeopardy hero. You will always be my Jeopardy hero. Um, Kalila Brown Dean, as we say goodbye, I have to say that one of the thing the thing that will stick in today's show for me is something that you said earlier on, which is. You know, Charleston and this church, they just can't become part of some historical Mm -hmm. tour. It has to be more. I don't know what more is. They can't be the next stop on the tour of pain. It's got to be something Mm -hmm. more than that. I don't know what that something is. Maybe that's another show. Kalila Brown-Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. Tucker Ives, pulled this show together. Maury McInnes, read her article in Slate uh, about the story of Denmark VC and Charleston in general. Uh, Thanks to Chris Robb as well. And Arthur Chu, check out his piece in Salon. We'll be back tomorrow. 